Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Levi Anderson, and I am the pastor of Evangelism and Discipleship here at Faith Bible. And it is truly an, an honor and a privilege to be here this morning, uh, not just up here to study God's Word together, but just here at Faith Bible as a, as a part of this church family. Um, my wife, Charity, and I, we recently moved here, and, and uh, we already, even in this short time, we already feel right at home. And, and so for that, we're very grateful, and I want to thank you all uh, for that opportunity. And, and as many of you know, we, we did just recently uh, move here to Cedar Rapids from Dallas, where I finished up my time at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and so it really wasn't that long ago that uh, we packed up everything we had, loaded it into a truck, and hooked the car up behind it, and, and drove a couple, maybe a thousand miles over here to, to start our new ministry here in, in Cedar Rapids. And i got to be honest with you guys, that starting out that journey, I was a little nervous uh, to drive that kind of setup for a thousand miles through a couple major cities uh, all the way across the country. I, I was a little nervous, but praise the Lord, we made it here safe and sound, and, and there were no major incidences, there was no, no issues at all, really. Uh, and, and that was despite a few close calls. Now, I don't want to sound overdramatic here, I mean, just statistically, driving that far with that kind of setup, something's bound to at least almost happen. And one of those cases in particular really stands out to me as I think about that transition in our life. It was actually only a few hours outside of Cedar Rapids. And so with most of our miles behind us, I really kind of felt like everything was going to be downhill at that point. Until I tried to do something that I had probably done a hundred times on that that trip alone. You see, I came up along a slow-moving semi. And so I thought the natural thing to do here is, is to pass. So I began this process of passing the semi like I had done so many times before. Uh, I turn my blinker on. Uh, I get into the other lane. I begin to accelerate. And right in that moment, this semi swerved all the way over into our lane. Now, if any of you have been there, which I'm sure you have, that's not so fun. <laughs> and it only lasted a few seconds. Uh, but it was kind of terrifying and I reacted, I slammed my brakes on, I swerved a little bit myself, and again, praise the Lord, we really are thankful, nothing happened. But in that one second, it felt like his, the corner of his truck was that far away from our windshield. Maybe it was a little more like that far, but it felt like it was that far. And even though it lasted one second, that experience really rattled me. In fact, it rattled me the remaining, the remaining three hours of that trip until I, we got to our front door. And I think it illustrates the power of a close call. You see, in that experience, I was, I was rattled. I, I was moved. I was honestly tempted never to get back in a moving truck again. Uh, but maybe most importantly, I was shocked into this renewed perspective of seriousness in my driving, of alertness. Because those kind of experiences, close calls, they can change you. And this morning, as we study God's word together, we're going to take a look at a close call. But... Of a spiritual nature. You see, in Psalm chapter 73, a man named Asaph gives us his personal testimony of a close call. And fortunately, what brought him out of it. And we're going to see that that was an eternal perspective. And so as we think about the big picture of what we're going to look at today, our main point, it can really be summed up in one sentence. That an eternal perspective can turn close calls into uncontainable contentment. An eternal perspective can turn close calls into uncontainable 
content. Let's take a look and see how this plays out, how this fits together. Uh, A little bit of background here. This text, as I mentioned, is written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a part of of the priesthood and in the nation of Israel. And his specific focus was that of the ministry of music. So really, we kind of have the first worship pastor here. And so this true true to form, this chapter is a a poem. It's, It's a song. And so naturally, it has lots of emotion, a poetic description, even some hyperbole. As we read it, we'll see that it's almost like we're reading someone's carefully structured diary of his personal experience. Now, some of the specific timing and, and exact circumstances that surround this aren't totally clear, other than what we're told in the text itself, which we're going to see pro- is going to prove to be totally sufficient for understanding the point that the that God had in this text. The premise for the whole thing is given to us just in these first couple of verses from the words of Asaph himself. So let's look at Psalm chapter 73 as he sets up the scene in these first three verses. Listen as I read, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you can see from the very beginning that like most Psalms, this text is deeply personal personal to the author. It's real, it's raw, it's vulnerable. Our friend Asaph, he leads off the entire thing with this powerful affirmation of who God is. That he is good. And he's especially good to his people. A point that's going to prove to be foundational to the struggle that he goes through. Now, but Asaph... He wasn't always singing that line of the song so confidently. You see, the premise of this text is is something written after the fact. After what what we might call, spiritually speaking, a a close call. You see, he includes that imagery of, of almost slipping. That he was right on the edge. That he almost lost his foothold. Because he's so overwhelmed by this dilemma that he has. So obviously the situation here that we're looking at is very serious, especially because this guy was a major leader among God's people. But I think as we move through, we're going to see that it's not only serious, but it's also very simple, and I believe for us, very relatable. What's Asaph's problem? Well, he says that he envied the life of the unbeliever. In verse 3, he summarizes his issue, saying that in this situation, as he struggled day in and day out to follow God, he saw these pagans doing whatever they wanted. And it seemed like they were having the time of their life. And even for this worship pastor, that was beginning to look pretty good. It's not necessarily that Asaph's life was so bad. It's just that what he saw around him, it looked a little better. In fact, he goes on in this next section to even more graphically describe the life of the unbeliever that he's seen. And that's beginning to look, you know, not too bad to him. Look at verses 4 through 12 as he describes this. He says, for there's no pain in their death. Their body is fat, which which is a good thing, by the way, in this context. (laughs) Their body is fat, and they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes, their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue parades through the earth. 
Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. So what's Asaph's dilemma? Well, these folks, whoever they are, they appear to be carefree, uh, pictures of good health. Their life is just smooth sailing, yet they get away with violence. It says they have a nasty mind. They take advantage of people. And in all of it, they're totally full of themselves. It says pride is their necklace. They wear it proudly. Yet, people flock to them. Everybody loves them. They have tons of friends. And maybe worst of all, verse 11 says they they mock God. They say, you know, if God does know what I'm doing, it sure doesn't seem like he cares. Because my life is good. Verse 12 summarizes. Asaph sees the wicked living it up, loving every minute of it, and seemingly better off for it. I mean, talk about something that would keep you up at night. Trying to figure that out. How could God let that happen? Well, Asaph's over here trying day in and day out to follow him. Yet it seems like the blessings are going their way. Well, if that idea bothers you, even just a little bit, you're, you're not alone. Uh, this is an age-old struggle for the believer. The question of why. From whatever perspective you want to look at it, whether it's bad things happening to good people, or in this case, good things happening to bad people, God's people have always been tempted to envy the life of the unbeliever. Shows up in Job, several other Psalms, the Proverbs. It's all over the place. Even our own society captures this. And I think it's most succinctly captured in the well-known phrase, uh, nice guys finish last. Now, if you don't know the history of that phrase. It actually was originated from an MLB manager named Leo DeRocher. Now, if you don't know much about Leo, uh, I think his obituary really kind of says it all. You know, after someone passes away, normally people kind of err on the side of kindness. But even in Leo's obituary, uh, they kind of told the whole truth. Basically, explicitly saying, yeah, he wasn't nice. He just was not a good guy. His approach to baseball, they said, was that of not just hard work or skill or technique, but guerrilla warfare, dirty tricks. Yet, this guy won several World Series as a player and another as a manager. Because as Leo would say, nice guys finish last. You see, for people who are trying to follow God in a godless world, this is, this is a natural struggle trying to figure this out. Trying to make sense of what God is doing by allowing the wicked to prosper while sometimes his people suffer. Or at minimum, don't seem to prosper at the same level as those who don't follow God. And my guess is if you're anything like me, that, that we in this room, we're, we're not immune to this either. That there are moments, when it, at least tiny moments, that in our heart of hearts, we see people who we know, they spit in the face of God. Yet it seems like they're experiencing smooth sailing. Uh, I don't think you have to look very hard for this, right? Whether it's family or, or friends or co-workers who cheat, lie, steal, neglect their families, don't give God the time of day, yet they get promotions, 
They have tons of friends, less hospital visits, positions of power, and seemingly wonderful lives. All without making any effort to follow Jesus. I think this very morning is is a wonderful example of this. Studies have told us that for every person who got up uh, to come to church this morning across the United States, there's at least two others who use this time to get rest, to have fun, to get ahead at work. Yet sometimes it seems like those people have it just as good. Maybe even, like Asaph saw, have it better. If you're still having trouble relating to this, this issue, I encourage you to just spend a couple minutes on social media. You know, I don't think that ASAP was signed up for Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, but if you spend just a little bit of time on the right person's page, it'll bring you to Psalm 73 pretty quickly. It's the Facebook effect, right? That you get on and you see the wonderful lives that people portray. From the pictures, everything seems to be going amazing. Yet you know they don't really care about God. You know they live however they want. They don't give any effort to follow Jesus. And you know, if that's all we focus on, if that's our perspective on life, that nice guys finish last and that's just the way it is, boy, that can drive me mad. Ask Asaph. You know, I used to comfort myself when I thought of this issue by assuming that these people that I saw really deep down were miserable. That when they laid their head down at night, they couldn't get a good night's rest. They had no peace. That it just wasn't as good as it looked. The problem with that is, is if you ask them, some people would say that they love their wicked life and everything that comes with it. Well, what do we do about this? Because Asaph is surfacing a very real issue, obviously for him, and I think for us as well. That what we observe in the moment can be a tough pill to swallow. In fact, for Asaph, it was so tough that he came right up to the point of walking away from God altogether. Look how close he gets in verse 13 and 14. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph is so bothered by this that he begins asking, Is this whole God thing even worth it? You see, when he says, I've lived for God in vain, it has this idea of of emptiness, of worthlessness, that it was pointless. And I think this would have been particularly trouble for Asaph in his time, because in the back of his mind, he would have some promises that God made relating to this very specific thing, going all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, where God laid out some specific guidelines uh, in regards to blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. In, in the context of the nation of Israel. So in the moment, in Asaph's perspective, in that second, what he's observing, he feels like there's a disconnect. And it's in this moment where Asaph almost walked away. The slip that he mentioned, the, the right up to the edge that he referenced at the beginning, it's where it almost happened. You see, if this is where the text ended, it'd pretty much be the most depressing psalm and, and sermon ever. Uh, you know, this. I actually came across a video that put these verses to music and pictures, but the video ended at verse 14. It, it made me want to jump in the comments section and say, that's not the end. There's more to the story. Something else happens. And fortunately for Asaph, and for us this morning, there is more. This isn't the end of Asaph's story. 
And these next verses are going to show us that he didn't actually cross that line. That in fact, he had a radical change of perspective. Look at verses 15 through 20. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them on slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So Asaph is a total mess trying to figure this whole thing out. He comes right to the edge of walking away from it all. But he doesn't take that final step. As you read, as, as he explains what happens, it's really his sense of community, his responsibility to other followers of God, uh, that puts the brakes on him going over the edge. I mean, imagine that. If, if a major leader among God's people uh, came up and said, you know, before I get started this morning, I just want you to know, I kind of think this might be all pointless. And I'm considering walking away from it. I mean, that could be devastating to some people. And so this sense of responsibility, of, of community to the rest of God's people, really caused Asaph to pause just for a moment. But the real change... The real change in this entire text and in the heart of Asaph wasn't that. It it comes in verse 17. Asaph was totally disturbed until what? It says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. What's that? That's the place of worship where you come to meet with God, to remember who he is, to understand him. He says, then I perceived their end. He's given a new perspective. And just like that, Asaph goes from obsessing over the wicked's prosperity to declaring their dreadful fate. Uh, Really, verse 18 through 20 describes this terrible future for those who don't follow God. And it's eminent, this destructive language that they have coming their way. And so as we think about the transformation of Asaph, uh, what really happened here? In his experience, he goes from a total focus on the temporary, in-the-moment, emotional things that's right in front of him to a radically larger perspective on life. And I think that idea of perspective is really at the heart of the text here. You see, when Asaph came into the sanctuary of God, the idea is he he met with the Lord there. That is, understanding who God is, remembering the truth of God, and ultimately getting a glimpse of God's view on the situation. That is that someday, somehow, God, through the unfolding of his perfect plan, things will be made right. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe you'll have to wait all the way until eternity. But God's plan will be revealed and his justice will be displayed. And again, we have eminent language. The, the, the language in this uh, description of their future And I think we can say it's eminent with integrity because in light of eternity, boy, it's coming like that. In the text he says, like a dream, O Lord, when you're aroused, you will, you will enact this judgment. It's like, it's a dream. It seems so intense and real until you wake up and then it's over. That's the description Asaph is giving. And the things that change this for Asaph, I think, is what I would call an eternal perspective. So what allows you to keep following God? When your unbelieving coworker cheats, but they get ahead? When your unsaved family member scoffs at your faith, 
but their life seems pretty good, it's understanding that God is big. And in his big picture plan, he is in control. It's catching a glimpse of the bigger perspective, even one that goes so far to have eternity in mind. So often in life, I'm just like Asaph. And I miss the forest for the trees, so focused on what's right in front of me that I forget that God is big and he has a plan. And it's big too. So big it's eternal. You know, one thing that I really love, I I just really enjoy in life, is a good view. uh, Particularly out in in nature. Just... I'm not a, like a hardcore camping or, or biking long distance, but I love a good view. And when I think of all the views that I've been able to see, one that stands out uh, without a doubt is the Grand Canyon. If any of you have been there, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's just this amazing display of God's creation. Unbelievable. And when you go there and you see this, you, you almost can't help, but at least, at least on some level, think of things differently. Uh, That's why people drive thousands of miles to go see it. Uh, I went as a middle schooler, and even as a teenager, I got at least uh, on some level this glimpse of how small I really am and and how big God must be. And it's a memory burned into my mind standing there and looking at this magnificent display of God's creation. Uh, Because when you you experience that, you look at things differently. How much more so when we not just get a glimpse of God's creation, but of who God is himself. You know, I'm always reminded of the scene recorded in Isaiah 6. You remember the prophet walks into the throne room. The angelic choirs are proclaiming the Lord's holiness. And what does he do? He says, who am I, Lord, whatever you say. You're the one. You're the holy one. I trust you. A very similar scene is recorded in Revelation 1, where John uh, comes into the presence of the Lord, and the text says that he falls on his face like a dead man. You see, in those experiences, you walk away different. You're changed. You see things differently. They changed everything. Because in God's presence, and from his perspective, things look different. Now, I'm not saying Asaph necessarily had a divine vision Uh, But his transformation is along those same lines. It's further detailed in these next verses. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterwards, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, talk about a change in perspective. Asaph goes from being a total emotional wreck, acting like what he describes a senseless animal, to absolute faith. The total fulfillment in his relationship with the Lord. He says that he was pierced within. That idea is more literally translated, soured. In his experience, he went from from gut-wrenching pain to God-glorifying. He recognized that even when emotion and circumstance blinded him, God was always there, always guiding. And that satisfaction in God alone expressed here, I think, is truly amazing. 
that no other person, no other object, no other desire satisfies Asaph. That God alone sustains him. And knowing him and having the blessings of following him, which we may not fully realize until the distant future, in eternity. But having that is eternal and that is enough. Even when what I see going on around me doesn't totally make sense. And I think that question of ultimate satisfaction is a wonderful diagnostic to what our true perspective really is. You know, as I mentioned before, we, we just recently moved to town, and, and with that came all the normal setup in our new home. You know, we had to call the electricity company, the gas, the internet, all of those places. And, and for all the companies that we worked with, uh, there soon followed one of these customer satisfaction surveys. You guys know what I'm talking about? They, they often come in the form of five smiley faces, and you choose how satisfied you were with the experience based uh, on these, represented in these little emojis whether it was moderately grumpy face or really happy face. It's how satisfied were you with the experience with this company. And, and I think companies seem to really love these things. I get them all the time. But it seems like they love them because if people are honest, it, it, gives, it gives good feedback. And I was thinking about this week and, and, and wondered, if we took a survey this morning, a customer satisfaction survey, not about your internet or, or your electricity, but just about our life. Which smiley face would we choose? And maybe more importantly, on what basis would we choose that? You see, if there's a certain level of material blessing or or social status or ease that dictates this, then we begin to struggle in the very same way that Asaph did at the first part of this text. You see, these things that we enjoy, they're not bad. They're wonderful gifts from God. But they cannot be where we find our ultimate satisfaction. That's the heart of this issue with Asaph. Because then, our, again, we begin to struggle in the same way Asaph did. The question is, is God himself enough? You see, Asaph came to that point. In verse 26, he mentions the Lord is his portion. And it's a fascinating line because as a member of the priesthood in the nation of Israel, he wasn't given an actual physical allotment of land as an inheritance. So in a very real sense, for Asaph, his inheritance was the Lord himself. And and in a similar way, we as New Testament believers are a kingdom of, of priests whose inheritance is the Lord himself. This eternal relationship and fellowship with the Creator. And Asaph is asking us, is that enough? Because when He alone is enough, then even your body and your emotions, they might fail as you try to figure out what's going on with this person, why they're so blessed, and and what's happening. But you still have Him. And that is enough. In these last verses, uh, we get one final summary of Asaph's new perspective. Look at verses 28, or 27 through 28. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, with an eternal perspective, there's really only two types of people. Those who live however they want in this world 
And while they may experience some uh, form of, of blessing and ease, ultimately they're headed for destruction. And then there are those who are so satisfied in the Lord that they're able to see the big picture. Uh, to take the long view, to have an eternal perspective. And I think verse 28 really says it all. Uh, that Asaph is firm in his personal security found in the Lord. I love how the net reads for this verse. It says, but as for me, God's presence is all I need. See, having lots of friends, even good health, relative ease in life are, are wonderful blessings. And I don't want you to misunderstand this morning. Those are not bad things. They are wonderful gifts from God. But they're just that. They're gifts from God. And he himself is our good. The all-satisfying refuge in which we can trust no matter what's going on around us. Because we know what happens in the end. And we're on his side. You see, that kind of satisfaction, that contentment in God's promises to us, I think is nothing short of uncontainable. Asaph ends his entire testimony with this little phrase, so that I may tell of all your works. He's expressing this reality of what I call uncontainable contentment. When God's done a work like this in your life, when we catch a glimpse of his perspective, how truly satisfying he alone is, those experiences, they, they just flow out of us. It's not necessarily a command to evangelize or, or a special new uh, strategy to share the gospel, both of which are wonderful things. But the reason I love this text is because it's simply the natural outpouring of experiencing God's work in our life. And I think it's one of the foundational ways we can share with other people. It's uncontainable contentment. I think it's actually at the core of what we might call our witness. What does a witness do? Well, in court, they simply testify to their experience, what they went through, what they saw. And Asaph can't help but do that, to declare God's works, what he experienced. So... When your coworker is is cutting corners and, and gets ahead, or when your friends say that life's just more fun without God, you can say, yeah, that does look good, but God has given me a new perspective. These everyday interactions can be chances to share the eternal contentment that we've found in Christ alone. You know, there's a, a famous quote by Mark Twain uh, that's been passed around for nearly a century. And it goes something like, uh, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore. Now, maybe even some of you have heard that quote. It, it's a good quote. It's passed around all over the place. And, and I think I appreciate what he's trying to do, getting us to think with a broader perspective. But friends, that doesn't go nearly far enough. You see, God wants us to have a perspective that's not just concerned with 20 years from now, but 20 decades, 20 centuries, uh, millenniums. He wants us to have one that's eternal. So if you're struggling with what you see going on around you, I encourage you to, with me, cast your eyes further down the road. Found in security, only to be found in Christ himself. My prayer is that for us today, we too, like Asaph, would experience the power of perspective. That we can move from close calls 
to uncontainable contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, if if you're a believer, I encourage you to, with me, ask the tough diagnostic question of where do I find my ultimate satisfaction? Because that will tell you your perspective. Are you able to see something like the prosperity of the wicked as a chance, uh, not just to, to struggle through that, but as a chance to share what God has done in your life, to tell of his work? If not, I encourage you to learn from Asaph's close call. Learn from his close call. Come to the presence of God and ask for his perspective. Because you know what's cool is he wants you to see the way the world the way he does. He wants you to declare his works. Now this morning, if you're, if you're not a believer, uh, I urge you too to experience the power of perspective. And maybe you're just like the, the folks that Asaph saw. And, and you're not... You're not following God, but life seems pretty good as is. If that's the case, um, I encourage you to heed the warning from the great theologian Johnny Cash. Yeah, he has a song that goes, You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. You see, right now it may not seem like you have any need for God. That life is totally satisfying as is. But the pro- that's not the whole picture. That one day, Asaph is warning us that that will not stand. You know, Paul said it another way in Romans uh, 2.4. He said, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This morning I ask, is it possible that God is allowing you to prosper To get your attention. That you might turn to him. I think there's no better day to do that than than today. While it is still today. While there's still an opportunity. You see, in the ultimate act of kindness, Jesus took on flesh and gave his life for you. Then rising from the dead, he now offers payment for sin and new life in him. And so if you'd like to talk to someone about that, uh, we would love to. Uh, our, our prayer room in the back will be open, and, and someone will be in there. They'd love to show you in Scripture where this is all coming from, pray with you, listen. The room is open. And believers, it's open to you as well to take a moment and to meet with God and to experience the power of His perspective. And I encourage you to sometime today uh, to allow the nearness of God to be your good that we too may declare his works.